As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. I'm sorry, you can sit there and look and play with all your silly machines as much as you like. Is Gascoigne going to have a crack? He is, you know. Oh, I think! And time, and time again. Break up the music! Charge your glass! This nation is going to dance all night! The Kate AD of the Football Data Wars. A brief history of quaint advertising hoardings in English football. Goalkeepers who just watch shots go past them without even moving. Teams who never have to wear their away kits. The unspoken ridiculousness of a defensive wall at a free kick. Why popular culture isn't embracing football enough. And the psychology and body language of micro-cheating. Brought to your ears by The Athletic. This is Football Clichés. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 187 of Football Clichés. I'm Adam Hurry and alongside me for this one is Charlie Eccleshare. How's it going? Very well, how are you? Yeah, not too bad at all. Um, With us to share his six biggest preoccupations of football is the chief soccer correspondent of the New York Times, the owners of course of The Athletic, Rory Smith. Does this feel like being made to train with the under 23s? <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I, I would like to stress that I'm not the owner of the Athletic, or you know, I can't claim any ownership of it. No, but we are all we're all we're all family now, aren't we? We're yeah, all absolutely. One bid, we're all under one big umbrella. Yeah, absolutely fine. New yeah, York really. City FC vibes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, how do you feel? Does it feel like kind of? I mean, this 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 will give me away. Is this like a WCWWWF like merger thing for you? Is that the kind of vibe you're going for? He's done wrestling, Charlie. Uh, yeah, I know sorry. nothing about this, um, but yeah, I, I can see the parallels. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I guess that makes us the lesser one, doesn't it? That's fine, and that's fine too. The weirder one, that's okay too. Well, a lot of people prefer that. You know, they're yeah, they yeah, yeah. a bit more edgy. The WCW. Yeah. Oh, so a bit more in depth. I feel like <laughs> yeah. I, w- I would to defend the New York Times. I would say that our cooking section's better. <laughs> uh, it is. It, it is, is. Yeah. great. It is great oh, on the app. What a perk of the job it is to get free access to the cooking <laughs> app of the New York Times. But enough of that. Enough chat about this. Um, today, 
oddly and conveniently enough, is the release day for your new book, Rory, Expected Goals, about the data revolution in football. Now, it's interesting to me that you specifically have written this book because you're like, to me, you're like the K.A.D., of this topic. I, I sort of place you somewhere near the centre of the supposed war between the analytics community, because we can't call them a brigade, and the, oh, I don't know what we call the other side. I don't, I don't know how we classify them. But I put you firmly in the middle, kind of reporting on it quite neutrally. Uh, yeah, traditionalists, I suppose. Uh, yeah. People people who don't like numbers. Proper football men. Anti-Americans. Yeah, I think I kind of came to it by accident, because I, I, I helped work on a book called The Numbers Game. And I wasn't, I'm not kind of analytically inclined. I'm not, I don't really understand algorithms. I don't, I don't get that symbol that they use with the bracket where one's bigger than the other. I don't really understand that. <laughs> um, I, I suppose as a journalist, you just, you're just interested in new stuff. That's if I was to look back on my career, which I, I don't do very often. Um, I think what, what you're, what you tend to find yourself writing about is stuff that's new, that's happening, stuff that's different and things that are interesting and ways that football's changing. And Data's been central to that for the last... Well, when I started writing the book, I thought maybe the last 10 years, maybe the last 15, but I think it's actually further back than that. And it's it's a, it's a story that I didn't... It's, it's not the book I expected to write. I think it's better than that because at the centre of it all, really, for all the kind of... Yeah, the, the really intelligent, sciencey stuff that goes on for all the, the brilliant minds that have come up with all sorts of programmes and, and codes and algorithms to, to assess players. It's really just about people and everything everything that happens in football is about people and people with ideas and dreams. Of, that sounds dead cheesy, but dreams to do stuff to, to maybe make the game look a bit more like them, to, to interpret it in a way that they find more familiar. And that is what I found as I reported it was that those people often felt they weren't having any impact at all. But I think if you stand back and look at, at the way we talk about football, the way we think about football, the way we, we kind of analyse football, it's changed enormously without really anybody noticing it. So, you know, the box score. I think Ryan O'Hanlon did a piece for ESPN about, about how football's box score is, is old-fashioned and needs to be better, which is not a point of view I agree with, um, and not just because he's also got a book about data coming out. Um, <laughs> the, but it, like 25 years ago, they didn't have box scores. Yeah. That's relatively new. So if you watch footage of, of World Cups, certainly pre, pre-94, there's no box score. They're not. No, you, you turn the TV on. No one's telling you what the score is. I'm not sure they had it in cup final. They didn't have a. They did. They, you know, you could turn if you missed the first ten minutes of the cup final. You you had to wait mm-hmm. until Barry Davis mentioned what the score was <laughs> to know what the score was. But how? It's like the radio. How, how much yeah. steeper can that trajectory go? And I mean, I, I don't. Surely we don't need that information displayed to us no. for ninety minutes continuously, do we? Anything more than that? No. You need to know what the score is. That yeah. that is there is. I mean, I I think Ryan was probably being slightly like tongue in cheek about it, but you don't need you don't need a sort of rolling succession of stats down the side of the screen. It, I'm sure at some point with the way that kind of technology goes, you'll end up with access to that and you'll be able to press some button on bt and, and get access to you know the xg or the xa or whatever it might be but no i mean fundamentally what matters in football is what the score is that's what people yeah. kind of need to I'm know i'm never gonna i'm never gonna do that it, at this stage it's very go to skysports.com to see the full interview which i'm yeah, not yeah, gonna yeah. do that's fine <laughs> i mean that's just me um, I'm, I'm just absorbed by the game but it's interesting um, Roy, that you mentioned that it's about people because there is obviously a lot of instinctive kind of pushback on data in football from the romanticists, which is you know one way of describing them, and that's fine. That's up to them. You can you can consume football however you like. But I found that many of the early stories of data-led football are quite seductive. They're they're based around the idea of an at least vaguely football-aware data guy X has noticed that club Y are unwittingly doing things Z wrong. And he wants to show them the data to prove it. And that's, that is a fairly human instinct to do it. So like, oh, you're doing this wrong. Do it better. Yeah, I th- and I think that, to me, a lot of the culture war is kind of false. 
that there yes. is this. I think the, the the other thing this isn't this isn't really in the book, but maybe I don't know. Maybe there's a sequel. That'd be nice. But I think the the problem is that we all feel football really personally. So the way that we see it is the way that we think is the right way to see it. You know, you're you're right. Like there's a, the brilliant thing about football is there's a million different ways to enjoy it. You can you can look for lots of different things that that bring you joy or cause you anger, and then you can package them up into three, four, five, six individual topics and produce a podcast about them. But the um. You, you can enjoy it in, in any number of different ways. You know, some people do genuinely love those kind of tight, tactical nil-nils, but some people find them in, intensely dull and mock the people who enjoy them. But the, the point of football is that we all like different stuff. Like, it's it's this one universal thing that we look at in a million different ways. And I think with data, that there is a natural instinct from people who don't really want to enjoy football in that way to say, go away, you know, stay away from my sport. This isn't the way that I interpret the sport, so I don't think it's valid. And I just think that that's maybe slightly, not false, but it's, it's something that we do about a million different things. You know, a lot of people don't like it when you talk about systems or tactics, but then Michael really does so and that's fine like michael can enjoy football however he likes it's up to him not just him by the way that applies to everybody <laughs> and so what you get is this kind of this slightly performed pushback mainly on social media which then in turn makes the kind of the data community a little bit more what strident maybe is the right word in defending their patch whereas in reality i think that it's just another way to think about football another way to look at football and the other thing is that to an extent that the war is over and that that was one thing that i went into the book not necessarily expecting to find but having spoken to people i think that that there's still a massive question mark about whether football can use data better i think there's no question that we, we haven't yet started to tap its full potential um, whether we need to whether we ever will i don't know whether kind of a fully datarized football would look a lot better than this version of football. I, I don't know. That again, that depends on the beholder. But there's no question to me that that most clubs are using data in some way. If you speak to any of them, they'll tell you that everybody else is using it wrong. But they're all using it somehow. Even Manchester United. And I think a lot of fans have kind of absorbed data in ways that they don't fully realise. So. One of the things that, that is in the book is that I think the reason it happened when it happened was late 90s, early 2000s. It's just that's when you had a generation of fans who'd been brought up on fantasy football and FIFA and Championship Manager. Those were the three things. You, my generation, your generation, we, we instinctively get the idea that you can measure a player in numbers because we all, we've all played those games. We've all, you know, we've all selected players for fantasy. We've all done that stuff. I think people were ready for that revolution to happen, that the, the, the fan base had changed to an extent. And so football effectively changed a little bit to meet it that there is a demand there to say look is this what's this player's speed out of 20 please that's what i need to know is how fast is this guy out of 20 whereas to a previous generation that's com that's completely alien i like my dad would really struggle with that concept i remember when i was playing football manager as a kid he just thought it was stupid and to be honest there's probably a little bit of they're probably right that it's not a case of kind of meeting an algorithm and putting all these players of certain values together and that will make your team worth X out of a thousand and therefore they will beat the team that's worth Y out of a thousand. That's not how it works. You know, you see that there's millions of examples that every day. I read a piece by Johnny Lou this morning about the fact that all those players from Pochettino Spurs team haven't really gone on to anything elsewhere, obviously with Deli Ali being the link. And it's because there is an, there's an alchemy that happens under certain managers with certain groups of players that no algorithm can capture. And I think data is itself in football struggles with that. But we are, as a, I think as a rule, we are now ready to think, okay, we can express these things in 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 data terms and that in itself is a massive change in in how fo football fans think about the sport so there's still a, a healthy amount of intangibles left just satisfy everybody yeah i mean it is like you i i would i'd probably characterize myself as a romanticist like i love the i love the story of football i love the the, the kind of inherent soap opera of football the drama of it i don't 
necessarily watch a game and think tactically. I wouldn't claim to be able to do that. I certainly don't watch a game and think in terms of data. You, I watch and I want to see who the number 10 is and how slow they can run yet still dominate the game. That's what I want from a football match. But you'll never get... you. you I don't think whatever happens with data that there is a sort of... I don't think there's like a utopia where everything is defined by data because it's continually evolving and also that a lot of the edges will be in exploiting the ways that teams are using data and using them badly and that that's true of baseball that you know we, we think of baseball as this, as being this massive sort of data-ridden sport probably half the teams in MLB and MLB aren't particularly reliant on data it's happened in lots of places but it's not happened in others and sometimes those teams win because that's the nature of sport that if you do have a great don't know baseball hitter probably <laughs> they, might, they might they will hit the ball a lot and you know or maybe your pitcher has an absolute mare and you lose or whatever and it's the same in football you don't have to be i mean real madrid are not at the forefront of the data revolution but they keep winning the champions league so mm. they probably don't care to be perfectly honest there is that there is a bit of a you know we, we it became very kind of de rigueur to mock harry redknapp for not you know he'd just do like five sides in training but harry redknapp had like a genuine skill of putting a team together and that is some i don't think that's something that you can you can program effectively so as ever with everything it's a bit of a it's a bit of a mishmash you know data and the, the tactics stuff that's all really important but sometimes great players win football matches and sometimes things just happen when players get together speaking of players um charlie this is my favorite snippet of roy's book that i read the other day um you can have rigid hard algorithms doing their job almost faultlessly but um they're no match for when players try and game the system these two little um anecdotes are absolutely brilliant first of all Manchester City squad noticed that Pablo Zabaleta, their right back, had a habit of sprinting across the field during <laughs> lulls in play. He'd worked out that it helped him to improve two key metrics, distance covered and the number of high-intensity sprints. <laughs> Such cynical behaviour, Charlie, but I can kind of imagine you doing this. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm such a winner. Yeah. I, I, but I think you saw... I remember um, Clive Woodward, who was at the forefront of kind of the data uh, movement in rugby, and him saying that Will Greenwood started doing this. And similarly... He'd be sprinting up and down when the ball was dead, and his, again his teammates would be like, "What are you doing?" And he'd be like, oh, "Don't you know? I'm I'm onto something here." Um, I remember there was a thing; people were genuinely concerned that data was so shaping football that it was creating a world where midfielders were being very safe with their passes because they were becoming so paranoid about going in on a Monday and you know looking at their stats. They wanted to just have good pass completion. And I've got no idea how much that's apocryphal, but you can definitely imagine some people becoming quite preoccupied with their numbers, given how competitive footballers must be. That definitely happened. Yeah, the other example I think that was in the time serialisation was Tal Ben Haim, who who had a reputation for just playing short passes so that yeah. he was always... Yeah, and yeah, it, yeah. it was kind of the early stuff that... So when, when a lot of the data was provided by... When teams were using pro zones kind of on, on the ball data, the event data, they did the thing that teams always do. They used it to hold players to account. So if you could see, if you were the manager and you could see that someone had covered less ground or made fewer high-intensity high sprints, you'd bollock them for shirking, basically. That's what they thought, the, those managers in, I guess, the early 2000s thought data was for. And to, that has a value. That is, that is genuinely something that is... It was A, a massive change for football, and B, is probably quite important. And then the players worked out, well, if we're going to pin everything on the wall and make it a lead table, I won't be bottom of it, thank you very much. So they started doing stuff that... that kind of yeah gamed their positions a little bit and I think one of the one of the things that struck me as in, in writing it is that if you talk to analysts now like hardcore data people now they kind of smirk at how naive football was 20 years ago in in saying oh you know they were, they were using the physical data to see who was running the most as though that's important but that a is important just for, you know football basically is about running around and b you need those bridges like you can't go straight from Lord Reith broadcasting in 1929 to Netflix like you can't make that leap. People have to have bridges between eras. 
that make the next step possible. And so it was really important that when that Prozone data started being used by the clubs, that the managers did find a use for it. That, that it was at the same time as a lot of sports scientists were going into clubs to try and improve things like nutrition or you know warming up or whatever it might be. And they understood what the data meant because they were kind of more scientifically minded. So they provided the bridge as well. All that stuff mattered. All that stuff meant that if you don't do that stuff, you can't get PPDA. It just isn't possible. You can't go straight from Ferenc Pushkas to Gary Neville talking about expected assists. That's too much of a leap for people. And I think that to an extent, because football moves so quickly and because there is a slightly pur- puritanical street to a lot of kind of the data advocates in, in the public sphere, that maybe is missed. That all those steps, all those people who, who help that along, they were kind of the trailblazers. They matter in the story of data. I'm slightly worried now about what what we will see is completely archaic in 20, 20 years' time about what we were just absentmindedly doing in 2022. So, But um, it's time now for a kind of voyage into the true intangibles of football. There will be no data here, I'm sad to say, because this is Mesut Harland Dix with Rory Smith. Now, Rory, being the kind of um, amateur contrarian that you are, you've just refused to adhere to the structure of Mesut Harland Dix and you've just presented six things that could be construed as either loves or hates and I'm fine with this because um, they are six very good choices so I'm interested to see what spills out once you start talking about them. Well I, I, I just reject the love-hate dichotomy in life right. in general I think yeah, okay. that, that it's all a horseshoe. Uh, right well let's let's begin horseshoeing tell me about your first um, thing about football. My first thing is inspired basically by Burnley because so I used to do not a lot of games at Burnley but I used to get, like, like going to Burnley every so often and and it's a proper stadium turf more. I like the fact that at half time, basically most of one stand goes to the corner to smoke. I think that that feels like the sort of thing that football is losing as it becomes more professional and is d- disappointing. But what, one thing that always struck me was that, that invariably, like you got that great you know Milltown skyline. It yeah, like how many pictures have you ever taken of that, by the way? Between oh, a million. Both. Yeah, I have taken it every yeah. time you go. It, <laughs> it's the second greatest. What a lovely, what a lovely vista. It's the second best northern industrial skyline in football after Middlesbrough, where you get yep. the chemical plant fires. Mm. Not fire, they're not on fire, like the chimneys. The, nice. um, they're meant to be there. <laughs> right, I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, but there, was always ad- there were always adverts for like local butchers or some sort of local van hire place. And I'd always, invariably, as sort of Ashley Barnes elbowed someone in the face and you waited for play to restart, you'd sort of find yourself thinking, what, what must fans in, in like Thailand and Malaysia and Brazil and even France make of this that you see you know Premier League advertising boards are are sportswear firms and crypto crypto exchanges and Asian facing handicap gambling markets that's what you expect from from Premier League advertising boards and yet invariably they'd be like Roy Collins best sausages (laughs) and you're sort of thinking like is he paying a premium for for that space because he might get a bit of the Vietnamese butchery trade <laughs> is is it a Burnley doing a discount for local firms what's the advantage why do I now want sausages <laughs> the and it just they're so rare now that you see really specific local firms advertised at football matches even like in the championship that I think they are very very precious and special that one I would say is definitely a love I love seeing a a really bespoke unique advertising board preferably not one that that changes and flashes and has electronic pixels like a proper advertising Mm. board agreed agreed uh yeah i'm saddened by the the advent of um not just animated advertising hoardings charlie but also um, we're seeing two-tiered situations which is only for tv because obviously if you're at the stadium those Mm. two those two tiered advertising audience just won't match up at all the whole thing is is a disgrace quite frankly yeah and i mean the other thing as well 
linking to Rory's pick is though I used to love, and I don't know if they still have this in programs, certainly lower league uh, games. That a, I think a player would be sponsored by a company, by like a local solicitors or that sort of thing for the season. I always found that very. I don't know. Now, what's the brand awareness there? Like, how does that work? Unless someone's bothering to read the program and see who's sponsored by who, how does it? How on earth does it work? How does how does the deep line midfielder ever going to raise awareness of a local solicitors? Just it will all be data led. Existing, You're right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a chapter in Rory's book on this actually. <laughs> um, so, if we were to try and find the midpoint of this, the the local company done good, but also global outlook as well. It all comes down, Rory, to Raynham Steel. Yes, exactly. The most ubiquitous advertising <laughs> hoarding in relatively modern British football history. Yeah, I, I that I suppose is sort of a subset of of advertising in football in general that I find interesting is that, and it applies right up to like Aon span, sponsoring yeah. Manchester United. Like, pe- I know people do like do the Gazprom joke about oh, I'm going to have a nice pint of Gazprom mm. with the Champions League, but were people what what was in it for Aon to sponsor Manchester United? Like, what are Aon getting out of that? I find that really interesting. Did Raynham Steel sell more steel Must because have done. of? Like, were people thinking, do you know what? Funnily enough, I'm watching Sheffield United, but I do need some steel. Yeah. I need, you know, I need I need some girders, and I, I know where to get them. Like, I just, yeah, that is... Maybe with Random Steel, like, the, the, the CEO or whatever just really liked football, and they thought this is the way to get our steel-based messaging out there. That's entirely possible, and um, that possibility runs quite deep, because um, let's be a background on Random Steel, just for people who aren't really sure. Maybe they think they are a global corporation. No, they're not. Their head office is in Random Essex. And they've got satellite sales offices in Bury and Scunthorpe. That's where a lot, you know, a lot of steel is required in all of those places. Yeah. So we're not talking about a big global company. And yet, I have seen Raynham Steel advertising hoardings at the Toulon tournament in 2016. <laughs> <laughs> and get this, a World Cup qualifier between Bhutan and Sri Lanka in 2015. What's <laughs> Raynham Steel doing there? How much does it cost? Who organised it? Who organised Who is Raynham? advertising hoarding? <laughs> But I'm convinced as well, a lot of advertising is just the fear that if you don't do it, your rival might. So I reckon they're thinking, yeah, we don't know how much this is benefiting us, but... Like signing Ross Barkley because you don't want anybody else to have him. Exactly. Right. You're, sort of, you're just stockpiling the, the advertising space. <laughs> oh, God. Plummeting in value. Just, it's, it's got a bit of resale value. Um, we asked our listeners, Rory, for similarly quaint advertising hoardings... Um, that they've noticed over the years. Ross FJ comes in with a classic of Jiffy condoms, yeah. which, which, made, which was at Wembley as well, like prominently at Wembley. I mean, there's no reason for it not to be prominently at Wembley, but, it's, um, but it's, it seems like a, a niche product. Um, there, I, surely I, I, there is a sweet spot. There, quite, a, quite a big business, condoms, I'd have thought. Well, no. yeah. Uh, the target they? market, I guess. Famous, famously popular product. You know, why not? Yeah, that is, that is weird to think that... It is, I don't know why it's weird to think that that it's odd that there should have been a condom advertising hoarding at a football match. But it, it, is, it is strange, but at the same time makes complete sense. Weren't West Ham close to being sponsored by them or were sponsored and it fell through and they were without a sponsor? There's definitely a West Ham late 90s Jiffy Condoms story. Actually, the, that's a good long read. I shouldn't give that away. No, don't definitely do that. The I went to um, to see Feyenoord play at the weekend. I was in Holland uh, with a friend. Um, although my friend's actually an Ajax fan. He felt very uneasy. He enjoyed it until an hour until the hour mark when Feyenoord actually scored. He was quite happy until then. But they were playing Emmen, which is a minor Dutch team, who were for a long time sponsored by a sex toy company. Now, Emmen's a tiny place and it's a tiny team. Um, I forget what the sex toy company was called. Right. But the whole advertising, the whole idea was they would pay whatever it cost, you know, 20 grand or whatever it cost to sponsor Emin. But they w- there would be a furore about it, which is the advertising they actually wanted. Yeah, of course. So maybe Jiffy Condoms were doing the same thing, mm. that they 
they they paid a certain amount to get get at Wembley so that the newspapers, particularly if we're all honest, in the 1980s would would decry the mm. standards of football slipping. Mm. Maybe that was the play they would. Maybe Jiffy Tondoms were ahead of their time. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you certainly don't see them anymore. They've probably been, been bought out by by one of the condom giants. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Right, I see where you're going. Um, um, elsewhere, Edward Woodhouse has pointed us in the direction of um, a Kent-based butcher, and I believe this is from Gillingham in the mid-90s, uh, simply Mr. Ham Man, with a phone number yeah. underneath. That That's it, isn't it? Right in your face. I mean, it does leave a lot to the imagination still, Rory, but, yeah. um, but still the kind of the ballpark we're going for. You, you don't see enough phone numbers on, <laughs> on mm. advertising hoardings, I would say. <laughs> Nick H. writes in, Charlie, and says, if I became Premier League chair, then I would only allow the following hoarding sponsors. LucasAid, Rain and Steel, Nike, Amstel, PlayStation, Canon, Eurocard, and, as Rory says, anything with a local telephone landline number attached to it. <laughs> um, that's, that's, that's basically it. It's got a bit Champions League for me. Yeah, uh, I, I would. I think Carling from back in the day more than, more than Amstel. Amstel is very um, sort of corporate Champions League sheen. But so, otherwise, yeah. So the... Relatively recent history of advertising hoardings we covered. It's all been fairly incidental, some a bit of opportunism going in there, but it's not only the last 20 years or so has it gone rather too cynical because as listener Sam writes in, he's pointed us in the direction of the infamous Paul Robinson slash Borat slash Croatia away 2006, um, which is the, the bobbling ball from Gary Neville's back pass. The advent of the conveniently placed hoarding Rory is, is a very cynical, and, and like, I'm also including things like um, photographers capturing Lionel Messi with, like, you know, a superlative behind mm. him that just happens to be there, and you think that's deliberate. They're doing it deliberately. Well, the worst one of all, of course, is PSG are now sponsored by something called Goat. <laughs> right. That that is that, that is beyond. That should be. I mean, forget FFP and you know state-sponsored football clubs. That is the sort of thing UEFA should, should be tracking down on. Mm. I would also add the Vitality Dog into that. Mm. The Vitality Dog is very clearly an attempt to get to capture someone passing the ball to the dog. It shouldn't be allowed. I'm, a bit, I'm no. amazed that the FA allow stuff like this. But do you not think that m- the moving hoardings must distract the players? Yeah, yeah, well, there was the Renato Sanchez one, wasn't yeah, there? Yeah, yeah. Where someone... he thought someone was making a run and it was an advertising hoarding. Yeah, there's something in Germany, a Bayern Munich player passed the ball to an um, animated Santa Claus running down the wing, I'm led to believe. <laughs> but the, um, there was a chance that, you know, Bayern Munich might look at all of their opponents and think, these are basically animated Santa Clauses. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, on on these things, promotion and relegation could hinge. And imagine the lawsuit. Who the, who would they who would they sue? The stadium? The Vitality Dog. Yeah, <laughs> he would be dog personally itself. liable. <laughs> He's yeah. ruined. Some may remember Charlie from uh, Channel 5's England coverage era. Uh, they used to promote upcoming films. Mm. Get Carter. In the background of <laughs> Albania one, England three, in Tirana, not having this is this is particularly is a disgrace. The Anglo-centric advertising hoardings for England away games is a really sad yeah. development. They should be of the home country. Yeah, I'm not having this. Should be films coming up on Albanian TV. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Norman Wisdom again. <laughs> but there's a flip side to that because I quite like it in a Champions League game where you between say Ar- I don't know Arsenal and Bayern Munich or whatever, where you get what is very clearly a German advert. And you sort of think, actually, good, yeah, the Germans or the French or the Italians, whoever, I'm not picky about which European country it is, are saying, we can buy this advertising space too. It's just a little reminder that Britain's not the only market. Mm. That garage door company, that's what it is. Horman, that's what it is. Horman, the garage door manufacturers. Bloody hell. who's, Who's watching the game going, do you know what? It's about time we got one, actually, a garage door. I'm fed up with it just being open. Do you think Horman used Rainham Steel to make their garage door? (laughs) 
synergy i hope so simon tires has sent me a tantalizing snapshot of what looks like stanford bridge in the mid 1970s and behind the goal is simply the exorcist written twice (laughs) (laughs) which is actually more is that advertising for an individual exorcist (laughs) no no the film film. (laughs) if you need one Um, more more films on advertising hoardings but not upcoming on channel five fine with that in more recent times rory i've seen ethically sourced coconuts Okay. In capital letters at a Premier League game. Um, but all of this really has been building up to this, which I think, pound for pound, is the worst act of sports washing in British football history. This is from Fraser, who says, At Blythe Spartans, sandwiched between adverts for a local bed and breakfast and the University of Sunderland, and directly underneath one for sales, lettings and property management, simply says, visit North Korea. That is extraordinary. So... The guy who runs a website called visitthedprk.org, a British guy, it seems, just got in touch with the club and said, can we advertise? And they went, yeah, open-minded, don't mind. There was a little bit of uproar about it, but yeah, there it was. A tiny, what looks like a four-foot advertising hoarding for simply visit North Korea. Why? If if Blythe Spartans had said no, and the man who runs that website had accused him of censoring him, where would he have compared himself to living in? That would be my question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, strictly speaking there is a kind of northeast connection charlie the 1966 world cup so there there is a hint of depth and authenticity here but it is very very strange that Um, would be a great post rationalism but you know maybe we'll just all between the three of us we're just ignoring how advertising works it's 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 a drip 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 until you you need that thing so random steel a trip to north korea jiffy condoms uh, at some point you're gonna need them this episode is supported by fx's welcome to wrexham Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX's Welcome to Wrexham premieres May 2nd on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Brought to your ears by The Athletic. This is Football Clichés. Next up, Rory, tell us about... I love this one, by the way. Your next thing about football. 
So this is best summed up. I realised after I'd sent you my list uh, is best summed up by the 1997 Champions League final, the third goal, Lars Ricken for Dortmund against Juve, where it's a lovely goal, sweeping counter attack, inspired by Karl Heinz Riedler, the real hero of that final. You're right. And Ricken, who's on as a as a, a re- relatively recent substitute, takes one maybe two touches and then just lofts the ball over Angelo Peruzzi in the Juve goal, makes it three one to Dortmund in the Olympia Stadion in, in Munich. Everyone goes wild. Dortmund win the European Cup. But what what makes that goal is that Peruzzi is struttling back backwards, and then he realizes this is too high. I'm not getting there. And he just stands stock still, sort of arches his head back over his right shoulder and watches it drop in. Mm. And it is the, the perfect expression of goalkeeping hopelessness. And what I love about any goal, but that goal in particular, is goalkeepers standing still as the shot goes past. Because it is the goalkeeper saying, this is, this is, I can do nothing about this. This is too good. I like it particularly when goalkeepers do it with shots they probably could get to because it creates <laughs> the impression they, they can't really be arsed. Mm. Um, but mm. I think it makes every goal that's scored with a goalkeeper standing still look infinitely better. This is interesting because when Rory posed this one, Charlie, um, the scenario I had in my head was kind of a powerful shot, maybe through a crowd that, that the goalkeeper was unsighted by. I didn't consider the kind of hopeless shot over their head that they're never, ever going to reach. So there's no point in even properly backpedalling because um, that, that requires a lot more arching and admiring than to be the statuesque yeah, that's a, this is a really interesting part of this genre because yeah, I think the key, much like um, Kane's goal on the weekend, where the keeper's leaning one way, and he really, even though the shot is sort of bobbling, he's just like, "There's nothing I can do," and they're sort of stand. I'm imagining that kind of low one mm. sort of rolling past them, and it's interesting though, Roy, you say that you think it makes goals look better because I I remember there being a thing that sometimes people would talk about how a goalkeeper's sort of despairing dive would add to. To, to the element of, of sort of the spectacularity, to use a, a Wenger word. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's interesting that you think it kind of, it sometimes helps the majesty of a goal with a, with a goalkeeper rooted. I f- freely admit this is a controversial topic. There's a lot of people think that the goalkeeper... <laughs> we tackle not, the big issues here. <laughs> the goalkeeper not moving makes everything look worse. And I can I can see that. I completely, I completely get that. But to me, there's a hierarchy. And at the top is shot so good, goalkeeper can't move. As though he's rooted by the beauty of it. Right. Below that is is despairing dive type one, which is where the goalkeeper goes for it, but then realises they're not going to reach it, so withdraws the arm. <laughs> the withdrawing Why would of the they ar- do that? This is very, I, I'm not going to expend the energy on this. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not extending my elbow. This just yeah, hurts. Yeah. I'm going to concentrate on how I fall rather than trying to save the shot. And yeah, then true. N- number three is despairing dive with arm fully extended, just maybe brushing the fingertips of the glove. They're all wonderful. They all have their own kind of artistic merit. But there is, there's something so quite rare, I think, about a goalkeeper. Does it, is the goalkeeper saying, no matter how good I am, that shot mm. is better than me. And that is quite a quite an unusual thing to see on a football pitch. And that just, because it's relatively rare, because it, hap- it, does, it has such a powerful connotation of despair, I think that there, it's almost an acknowledgement from the goalkeeper of, it's, it's like a round of applause from the goalkeeper. That is, it is the, it's an, it's a kind of impromptu, instantaneous round of applause. Also, perhaps, perhaps even, Charlie, it's, it's kind of like a goalkeeper's union endorsed act of self-preservation. It's kind of like, well, I couldn't do anything about this and I need to make it, very, very obvious that I could do anything about it. It's kind of, you know, it's, mm, it's, it's, it's saving themselves as a species rather than just yeah. an incidental thing. It's, it's a yeah way of saying we need more protection. Yeah, um, Make the and I guess smaller. you don't you don't look stupid. There, there is that thing, isn't there? Like actually, if you if you watch the Cantona, that famous ship over Sunderland, Lionel Perez in the Sunderland goal. I thought he sort of just stood there because, but that's Cantona after just standing there. But Perez actually kind of oh, he chases grasped, it, doesn't he? Yeah. He oh, that is undignified. Turns his way back, and that. 
slightly ruins that goal for me. So it's, <laughs> it's quite a selfless act in a way. That just... is a very, very good spot. But um, I want to go all the way back up to the top of Rory's pyramid here. Because the first one you speak of is is a goalkeeper almost instinctively rooted to the spot. It isn't a conscious decision. They are just stuck there watching the ball go past them. And the goalkeeper I think of for this, overwhelmingly in Premier League context, is Hugo Lloris. He's really, really good. I mean, he's a very, very good goalkeeper and a very good shot stopper. But for shots that are completely impossible to even spot, let alone save, he's really good at doing... There's a very specific pose, but it's kind of slightly crouched. And then sort of leaning away and just sort of watching it as if a plane's <laughs> flying near him. Um, everyone knows what I mean when I'm talking about it. But it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's really strange. He does that so well, though, on shots that go wide. He often <laughs> judges them really well. He'll be rooted. And, but, and you're like, if that goes in, he's completely beaten. But it's as if he knows. He's like, no, I'm, I'm It's I'm a little bit like here. the pose that the extra officials behind the goal line used to do when they were trying to desperately look to see if the ball had gone over. It's like a crouch going, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, uh, that's that's possibly the goalkeeping body language I was after. But um, Alexander Abnos of The Athletic offers this one. This is a slight tangent, but I also like it. And it's specific to only one goalkeeper, which is Fabian Bartes pulling his shorts up. Yeah. yeah. Really high after <laughs> Yeah. What is that? Psychologists did, would have a field day with this. Did Bartes not hitch his shorts up before setting himself? I think he did both. But he, he certainly did it after some errors. Like I in that game where, where he was really... In that Arsenal one where they lost 3-1... I'm sure he does it there, maybe more than once, when he was really, like, gaffing a lot. It's like a sort of nervous tick, almost. Does, know, the, does like, that Arr! suggest that Fabian Bates was just wearing uncomfortable shorts? <laughs> don't know. It's a sartorial issue. Uh, well, I mean, again, this is, this is something that presumably the data revolution in football can, can attend to, that, you know, if you get the, the right fit of short on a goalkeeper, that might help their performance. Well, uh, you're talking to a man who uh, assessed the average height of the Premier League sock in the, for the first three <laughs> match days of the season. Um, uh, the analytics brigade love that one, I can tell you. Um, uh, let me end with this one, which is something we haven't raised yet, which I think, I think pound for pound might be the most beautiful act of mid to post goal goalkeeping body language from Henry Robertshaw. He says, a scuffed shot, horrible deflection takes it in. Keeper starts to change direction, realises it's too late. He's off balance. So just collapses gently yes. onto his back. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Beaten all ends up, that is. That's what it means. That, yeah, um, that is the image of being beaten all ends up. Yeah. 100%. 100%. Yeah, a gentle rollback onto the, the back is... Because it's, it's like, it's, it, again, it, it ties into the kind of polite acceptance of what's, what's been done to them. It's like, yeah, that was too good for me. Or, you know, fate was against me, more specifically. It's, maybe that's what unites the, the two of them. Is, it's an acquiescence to fate, which yes. is a, a feeling that we can all, you know, sometimes you just have to let, let yourself be swept away by, by the vicissitudes of life. Yeah, no data for that. Exactly. Exactly. And while I'm saying that, I've written a book about data. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. I'm, I'm on the wrong side of the argument now. Um. Tell us about your third thing about football, please. Well, the third thing doesn't really apply anymore. And I suppose I hate the fact that it doesn't really apply anymore. Because obviously now teams will wear, wear their away kits, as we all know. They wear them pointlessly to sell them. So you'll get teams who play in blue going away to a team who play in red. And the blue team will wear their pink away kit. And it'll actually make it worse. And you kind of think this is, this is capitalism gone mad. But I am obsessed... Obsessed. I'm fascinated by teams, mainly Norwich City 1993, who must have never worn their away kit. So Norwich in 1993 played in that that sort of speckled yellow and green affair that you will remember from uh, such famous events as Bayern Munich 1, Norwich City 2. Jeremy, think Jeremy Dorst, think Rule Fox, think Robert Fleck, 
the irony being, of course, that it was a flecked shirt. Maybe that was in... I'm, I'm going to guess it was an Umbro shirt. I might be wrong. But their away kit was white and purple. And it was a really nice kit to a, a kind of 11-year-old Rory. This sort of white... Similar to the Scotland away shirt from the 1990 World Cup, which had a sort of lightning effect. It felt quite jazzy. It felt quite different. It was quite bold. It was quite exciting. But I think that year in the Premier League, there were no other teams that played in yellow, so they never wore it. Ribeiro were the manufacturer, I can tell you. Right, okay. They've fallen from grace, probably bought out by Jiffy Condoms before they were bought out by one of the giant condom manufacturers. <laughs> they're still a going concern, Ribeiro. I looked them up. Well, they still have a quaint website with loads of testimonials from about 1997 saying thank you for the kit. It was, it was really yeah, great. Yeah. But interesting, this actually is a very good example that you've chosen here because the, that Norwich kit from that season is, is semi-iconic. A lot of people would, yeah. would remember it fondly or otherwise. The percentage of people who could even begin to describe the away kit must be minuscule. Well, I think in the early 90s, you, I guess it would have been on sale somewhere yeah. in some sort of sports shop in Norwich, but I don't think you'd have necessarily gone into a you know into Lily White's in London, London before it before it went down market mm. um, <laughs> and seen it. I don't think you obviously there was no internet; you couldn't order it online. That's right. They, they never wore it, so so you know how often how many were produced? Mm. Are they where are they now? Have they have they been are they in landfill? Have they been sort of hoarded by collectors you know i just find it really in some of those shops in tokyo adam that you've been to yeah 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 that's the holy grail now there. not yeah, holiday that, 88 that, it's norwich away 92 <laughs> i feel like you've justified another trip there yeah let's do it let's do it um yeah i mean it's, i mean market forces dictate charlie that it's just completely unsustainable to have a rare away kit now you have to give it eyeballs right yeah i do remember though when i first started getting into football as a kid finding it very odd that teams didn't wear their away kit for away games it felt to me that seemed like an odd way round that you only wore it if you had to. I kind of thought, what? But it feels like quite a nice thing to have. It's a bit confusing. Two teams in their home kit, and yeah, we're, for, for very different reasons, we've now sort of pivoted more towards that. I, I would say that one of the things I hate most about football, to give a nod to the to the traditional format, <laughs> is teams who have away kits that are very similar to their home kits. Mm. That, that I find that yes, deeply yes. frustrating. Yeah, and, it's so weird that. And because that justifies their third kit, right? Yeah, which which is invariably some wacky thing inspired by something mm. that is not mm. really inspired by. But I find I I find that yeah, the fact that you, I mean, I think Newcastle. I don't want to pick on Newcastle particularly, but I think Newcastle had they might have had like a whole black away kit at some point, yeah. or a whole white <laughs> away kit. You can't have that if you play in black and white stripes. That's really obvious. Like, wh- what do you think that you're, you're going to use this for? And stripes I find are that just annoying. They're just problematic. They cause these problems. The kit clashes, 90% of kit clashes yeah. are to do with stripes being a pain. Yeah, that's um, true. I'm going to take a wild gamble here and say that this annoys you too. Does it annoy you when you're preparing to watch a game that you're fairly neutral about on TV and then it emerges that one of the teams are wearing their away kit unnecessarily? And... In your head, you built it up subconsciously as famous colour versus famous colour. It's going to be a good game on that basis alone. And and one of the teams is wearing their away kit and that's it. It's ruined it as a spectacle in advance. I think that's a thing that, that everybody gets annoyed about. Good. I've got to admit that it doesn't always annoy me if the teams aren't that... You know, the teams are not kind of iconically associated with a specific colour. So I find it very annoying when Napoli continually wear one of their 12 or 13 different away kits for no apparent reason and with with no kind of pattern. So you kind of turn on Napoli against Juve, expecting to see, against, you know, sky blue against black and white. And it turns out that the sky blue is actually camouflage yeah. or, you know, the, I don't know, bright yellow for some reason. That irritates me. If it's two teams that I, I don't necessarily associate really strongly in my mind with being a colour, 
fine. I'm I'm a little bit more ambivalent. Like, like who? No, that that is a trick question. That, that, <laughs> I'm thinking of anybody. That will uh, no, no, but you kind of. I, I guess if it's a, uh, I guess if it's someone like Brighton, I've got a lot of affection affection for Brighton, lovely club, great Graham Potter, everyone likes Graham Potter. <laughs> but if it's Brighton and Brighton, are, you know, Brighton are at Manchester United and they decide to weather away kit, I don't really care. Okay, okay, that's fine. Um, yeah. I feel Whereas like it's, if it's if it's Chelsea Leeds and Leeds are suddenly in yellow then that's bad. There's mm. no reason to do that. The, the, but the power of kind of kicked combinations, I think, was best shown by the Forest Spurs game. Because that is newly promoted team against established Premier League elite team. That happens all the time. But the fact it was Forest wearing the Forest colours, playing Spurs in the Spurs colours, made it look like the 1991 FA Cup semi-final. And I like that. Well, I mean, that's specifically fine. Absolutely true. But Charlie, it was a great combination of kits. It, it let it built up the game more than it already was. I was looking forward to watching it because I knew what it was going to look like and it felt great before I'd even seen a kick. Yeah, I mean, I always felt that about the Classico. I, I, um, the Real Madrid-Barcelona one. I mean, that to me is just such a beautiful combination of colours that works so well. And I don't know if there's anything actually in that if the, you know a, a colours expert would say that they do but that would be one where I would be very very disappointed right next up let's go roughly full circle this may be something in 20 years time that we'll look back and say what the hell they were doing Rory yeah I, I this isn't a love or a hate it's just a question um, has no one has it not occurred to anybody that you don't always need a wall at a free kick that's that is something that obsesses both me and my dad I've right. inherited it oh that's um, nice the it's one of the few things we have in common but oh, I say in common maybe just that he told me that and I, I agree with him um, I think there is a line about 27 yards out from goal, whereby if the free kick's inside that, you need a wall because it makes it hard to, to get the dip, to get the yep. ball over the wall. Yep. Beyond that, a goalkeeper, an elite goalkeeper, even Hugh Dolores in his um, in his standing still phase, should be able to save a shot from 35 yards if mm. he can see it coming and there is no one in his way. I don't know why teams have walls for, for long-range free kicks, other than, and this is my dad's theory, um, the presumption that if they didn't build a wall, the attacking team would. Mm. That's true. Yeah, you always have to think ahead about what the reaction would be to the scenario that you're posing. I have so many questions about this, Charlie. First of all, this isn't this isn't an unheard of argument. There are there are lots of people suggesting that thirty yards out, you shouldn't need a wall. Goalkeeper will be able to do the job. The only exception for this is if someone sort of knuckleballs it. There's a fair mm. chance that the goalkeeper's in real trouble, and you're really isolating them. That seems unfair. Yeah, I don't know. I mean. Obviously, yeah, when they're that far out, because when you watch people taking free kicks without a wall, it is incredible how they can just put it very easily into the top corner. I guess, as we've spoken about many times today, it is a numbers game. I mean, how often could someone really do that from 35 yards? Do you just accept that, yes, it may happen once in a very large amount, but that's probably a lower risk than getting a deflection off a wall or or playing everyone. I mean, I guess there's an... I, I can't imagine how it would work. But that, mm. but that's not to say you shouldn't do it. I'm just sort of visualising yeah, what it looks that would look like. completely alien. Well, I wonder if that's the other thing, is that no one's quite sure what they'd do at a free kick if there wasn't a wall. This is it. it where would they stand? Literally, it, where would they stand? Where would 11 other players stand? It provides employment for six or seven people. And I think that's the mm. footballers are, are afraid of being underemployed. And so you'd be kind of, what, mooching around on the edge of the penalty yeah. area. <laughs> it's quite nice just being in it. You're like, right, I'm here. I, don't I know what I'm doing. I jump up. Yeah. Well, this is it. Um, or do you? You know, if we, if we, if we take it into a, um, the most earthy, authentic scenario of all, Sunday League. Charlie, were you a wall inhabitor? I was 50-50. Because it, makes yeah. you, it does make you feel important, doesn't it? It makes you feel like you're I, playing I, I football think, properly. Yeah, partly for the reasons Roy says. It's just like, you know what you're doing. 
You know, you, you, there's, and there's a slight security and num- strength in numbers. There are like four or five of you. If you mess, it's slightly the keeper's fault. It, you know, they, they need to direct you. They're the, the ones who get the telling you how wrong. many they need. Why? Yeah, just, you don't know. Left, You're just saying a number. <laughs> yeah, I know. I love that as if it's really civic. Four. Yeah, four. four. Yeah, going to need four. Definitely don't know what four. Means. Why? I would argue that there is no need at all ever for a wall in Sunday League. <laughs> now I think about it, free kicks so rarely hit the wall. In Sunday League. When was the um, last time that you saw a free kick stored in a Sunday League game? Well, it, it, it must, it must, it must happen. Standards but are increasing. It's like watching like a first division game thirty years ago and wondering <laughs> how the hell it all happened. But to try and extend your argument even further, you are saying that any free kick from twenty-seven yards out or more shouldn't have a wall at all, or at least teams should be trying it. I'm not wedded to 27 yards, but it's okay. around there. No, but, no, that's a yeah. good number. It's fine. Well, how do you feel then about, say, a free kick out wide, which could conceivably be goal bound, but is more likely to be a cross, where teams put two man walls up? How do you feel about the two man wall? I feel d- deeply suspicious of it. I don't understand the <laughs> point of it, especially just from out wide, the players are going to, ha- whether they're shooting or, or crossing. The, the taker is going to have to get height on it mm. early. It doesn't have to dip. You don't have the dip issue. So it makes... no. I don't... I presume they do it. Do they do it to cut off an angle must. to the near post? That must be the, the logic know. behind it. But I don't think it's the most effective thing about football. And I would hope that some of the, you know, the world-leading teams, the ones who think about the game most deeply, I'd like to think they might look at that and think, hang on, <laughs> why are we doing that? What's the point? There, like there, is the such, there is such a thing as the, as, the, as the one-man wall, which I would suggest is best described as a brick. Yeah, well, that happens when a two-man wall is forced to split because there's a runner, there's a potential yeah. sneaky runner off, off, off the ball. You think, oh, you've got to go. Can you, can you go and do it? Then you're just every one bloke just stood there. Very lonely, a very lonely situation. But my real bugbear about this, Rory, in walls, and I feel like this is a fading thing at the top level, but still rife at Sunday League, Linking the arms in a wall. Yep. There'll always be someone in a wall who insists on linking arms. You don't need to. You'd be able to move quicker and chase out if you don't link arms. There's absolutely no need. I don't know why people do it. What is, is that? It? Is that now? A, is that handball now? Just linking arms with with some people you don't know that well. I think is is is, is the is the definition of an unnatural position. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> should say as well that this is all so much of the free kick revolution has been data led because when I remember Liverpool scoring a free kick with Coutinho he and Liverpool had noticed that Brighton's wall always jumped he went low they scored and now we have the I mean that is a genuine development of the last five years you must hate that someone... Rory you must hate the guy who lies down the draft excluder I yeah I think that you'd be better off just getting them all out of the way and then you could watch the shot <laughs> I I cannot ever see myself, Charlie, performing that role. I'm yet to see that at Sunday League. That hasn't yet uh, infiltrated. That's I'm sure a lot of people do. There'll be, pe- there'll be people who will love to do it, though. Mm. Who, because so much Sunday League, as we talked about before, is living out your kind of professional fantasies and making yourself seem important. So I bet there are those people like, we need a draft excluder! <laughs> but I feel like this would be this would be beyond Sunday League earnest. This, this would be quite ironic. Like a, one of the jokers of the team lying down going, oh God, I'll do it, I'll do it. <laughs> Like They'll me when both. I put two hands up at a corner, because I, <laughs> I know it's funny. I know it's funny. Right, your penultimate thing about football, please, Rory. So this is similar to something that, that I think Jonathan Wilson brought up on mm. Mesut Harland Dicks, um, but it's a different, different kind of approach to it. So Jonathan's thing, obviously, is Jonathan was pedantry and anger. <laughs> Whereas I, 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 I just find it quite interesting that it's when you hear football mentioned 
convincingly or not, in a in a completely kind of alien mainstream culture setting. So the, the example I'm going to give is, is, is completely arbitrary. The sitcom Modern Family, very popular, won lots of Emmys. There is an episode of that in which Liverpool's season is mentioned. It must, must have been from kind of the, the, the pre-pandemic year. And there's something very odd about the fact that football is this, this global phenomenon. I think David Goldblatt, another previous guest, has described it as... Um, as the kind of the greatest like sociocultural phenomenon, maybe apart from religion, of all time, mm. and yet when you hear it mentioned, Very, or, uh, except for the birth of my kids moment, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, when you hear when you hear it mentioned in like any other context, there's there's a sort of thing where there's a, there's this urge, maybe it's just me that has this, to be like, oh yeah, football, I like football, <laughs> they like football too. Yeah. It's nice that they it's like true. football, but but I mean, billions of people like football. It's not in many ways. It's quite surprising that. It's not mentioned more. I think you, on the episode with Jonathan, you talked about how like like serials, soap operas, whatever, can't really mention live sports because it dates them immediately. There's that. Is it the Family Guy joke or is it a Simpsons joke where they cover the mouth and say they're trying to name the teams that are in the Super Bowl and it, they cover the mouth with a beard and go the the Atlanta Falcons. I think they'll beat the Chicago Bears. <laughs> and so that you you get why why say Corey can't do it or EastEnders can't do it. But it's slightly weird that that. That to me, that football isn't mentioned more in the general course of things that are supposed to be realistic, mm. given that it is the greatest obsession of the 21st century. This leads me into the um, actually the only viable listener contribution for this one, but it is really good. And one of my favourite entries that begins with might not be quite what you're looking for, but Martin says, might not be quite what you're looking for, but famously in League of Ireland circles anyway, a man in a pair of Cork City shorts shows up for a second in the Bourne Supremacy. This is exactly what you mean, right? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's the little nod of that means something to me. And I guess with Cork City, it's fine, as you, you wouldn't expect necessarily to see you know, Jason Bourne dealing with, with Cork City. But yeah, even if it's an AC Milan shirt or Real Madrid shirt or some, some kind of brief acknowledgement of football's existence within mainstream culture, I find that quite sat- If You feel like you're being seen. I believe mm. is how people would put it, and that yeah. that in itself is is really heartwarming. So I think one of the other things that one of the famous examples is the the Independence Day, or is it the day after tomorrow? Day after tomorrow. Day yeah. after tomorrow. It, thing. One of the famous ones is the day after tomorrow, and that is obviously a bizarre incident. It makes no sense which game it is, or mm. and the commentary is all kind of out of whack. But at the same time, he's watching football, and I watched that film, which is one of the greatest films of all time, right. and he wow. and he was. And you think, that's amazing. Why are Bocca Juniors playing Man United? But fine, that's great. This is, th- there's football in this film. This, is, this, this, this makes me feel like people, you know, people out there like the same things as me. And I think that's, that's quite heartwarming. Do you have an urge as well, I feel like, to sort of explain, it, like if I'm watching my wife, who isn't particularly interested in football, I really want, if there's a reference, to be like, what's that? Yeah, no, no, no. That, 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 that's just a reference to um, Little Thing. It was a game in the 90s. And she's like... I really don't care. Exactly. You should be had more opportunities for that. But but in summary then, Charlie, are, are we happy with this theory that popular culture hasn't embraced football enough? And I don't mean because football needs its dues. It's just that football is such a big part of society that it's, it's incumbent upon popular culture to embrace it more just for authenticity purposes. For true naturalism, yes, I think that's right. Yeah. But I can see why they'd be hesitant because as we've discussed before, there are... S- yeah... Well, that's the thing. I mean, like neighbours went down the route of often having fictional teams talked about, this or just very, or in very vague terms. Hit, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> but I always wondered that. I was like, is there 
is there a rights issue here? Like, can they not really talk about the team? No, but Do you they can, have to fudge it? You can, you can mention, surely you can have someone in Neighbours or whatever say, you know, not even, even, not even say Real Madrid. You could have them, maybe they can't have them wearing stuff because they, I wonder if there is, a, maybe there is a kind of rights issue for using, maybe you have to like, if you you make a film and someone's wearing like a Barca shirt, maybe you have to pay Barcelona, I don't know. Well, there's also the thing, isn't there, where you want to be neutral because yeah, you don't want to offend any, but, but if, if you do talk about Real Madrid, they might be like, oh, we don't want to alienate the Barca fans here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's true, yeah. You know, Republicans buy sneakers too. Just, just use elegant variation. Well, the uh, the Spanish giants. Yeah, <laughs> exclusively that. <laughs> that's basically what neighbors did. I they were like, he's gone over to he's gone over to play for the Hammers. Definitely them. The most recent um, example of this is, was actually quite jarring. Um, a couple of people have pointed me in the direction of episode two of the first series of She Hulk Attorney at Law, which. Uh, is about as um, straight to business uh, concepts as you can imagine. But um, in this episode, um, She-Hulk walks into a bar and the music playing is uh, Stop This Flame by Celeste. And there just must be a whole bunch of people that are going, <laughs> just completely taken out the storyline going, oh, I can't watch this. Where's That's the football? Amazing. So, um, yeah, sometimes, sometimes it's just not worth the risk. Right, Rory, your sixth and final love slash hate slash neutral thing about football. So this is a, it's kind of a hate, but not really in the sense that, so everyone hates diving. Yeah. Apparently. I quite like diving. I think when done well, it's kind of an art form, but I don't have a problem with it. I have a problem with it done badly, but if a player gets away with it, which increasingly is rare. What's your least favourite type of dive then? My least favourite type of dive is, my favourite type of dive is the one where they accidentally trip themselves up and then turn it into something proper. Yeah. Uh, My least favourite type of dive is the trailing leg. The trailing Ah. of the leg, I think is is a despicable move. But we, we, we don't like diving because it's, it's morally repugnant or whatever. I would say that the exact same moral problem applies to a player claiming a throw-in that they know is not theirs. <laughs> and I don't understand why that isn't more of a thing. Why every player does it, absolutely every player does it, and I've asked players this, they do it knowing full well. So I thought maybe it was just that they, they genuinely believed that they hadn't touched the ball last, or they saw a, a snick or whatever. But they don't. They do it knowing full well that it's not their throw-in or their corner or their goal kick. But they claim anyway to try and trick the referee, and that's fine. That's football. It's a competitive sport. It's professional. They are there to win. I get that. What I don't understand is why we don't regard that as being as, as, mor- as morally questionable as diving, when it is exactly the same thing. It's like micro-cheating, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and it all builds up to something. But in this specific example, Charlie, of a player appealing for a throw-in that they think is theirs, I wonder if their knowledge of whether they touched the ball last is overridden by by the heat of the moment, uh, slash they just want it to be true, which is basically the accusation you can throw at football fans 90% of the time. They're appealing for something they want to have happened, not what they think has happened. So maybe the same applies, mm. applies to players. Maybe, yeah. But it is interesting because Rory's right in that, that obviously diving, not only is, like appealing for throwing, not only would you not criticise someone, you might even cite it as evidence of their will to win. Mm. You know, that they're so determined that they'll you know, appeal for everything in a kind of positive framing. Uh, it is very odd. We, I don't think, this is the sort of thing we don't really talk about enough in mainstream football media, Rory, which is um, the act of appealing for a throw-in. Like, off the top of your head, what is it that players do? Raise, raise their right arm, ordinarily, and shout, our ball. Yeah. In a, so, in a variety of languages. Why do you need to raise your arm? Like, what's the, what's the point? 
Is it is it testament to the sports Victorian roots? <laughs> Probably. Where lots of urchins were told that they had to raise their hand for more food and therefore that's what they kind of did in, in football as well. It is you kind of raise your arm. Sometimes I think they just point at the opposition player and right. presu- presumably say they touched it last. Mm, mm. Um, but the thing is, this is one of the things that unites all of us. Just this, just we've all done it. Everyone does it at Sunday League in kids football and pub football, whatever it is. You wrongly claim for throw-ins, despite the fact that on some level you know that you kicked it last, mm. and and you never think you're cheating, but you are. You are cheating. You are trying to fool the referee, and you are as bad yeah. as the you know as Richarlison. For the, for the diving, not so much the showboating. But, you know, that is that is all that you're doing. It's just a different form of the same type of cheating. Close cousin of this, Charlie, um, if we can take the cheating out of the equation uh, for the moment, which is um player has a shot from 27 yards and it takes what they only they can detect is a nick off a toe of defender. And everyone else in the stadium, understandably, ha- won't have spotted it, including the referee. I love the series of events that then take place because... The ball sails wide. There's this kind of pause. Even even the player themselves, the shooter themselves, are not yet engaged in the situation. They see the ball go wide, and then this the pause where the referee hasn't given it, and then the, and then the, the sort of the hands on head herring after the referee. So good because <laughs> the hands out, both hands exactly, out. Exactly because this very particular scenario is the one where the referee. Like if you watch football enough, say twenty years or more, Rory, you are so finely tuned into what a genuine evidence-backed appeal for throwing is. You know when when you know that the player genuinely believes it, and I think referees slash linesmen know it too. So it's kind of an unwritten rule: is that if they can, if they think that the appeal is genuine enough, they'll change their mind, despite not knowing whether the ball took a nick or not. Yeah, they're I think so we- obviously led by human reaction. What I would say is with with the the ones you're talking about the, the shots that take a really sort of almost imperceptible nick yeah. off a player you can tell when the when the player who has taken the shot is right because of the the, the kind of passion and the certainty of their yeah. reaction you know as a fan that that did take a nick that must have taken a nick and invariably even if you don't want it to be true when, when you're watching it when you see the replay you think actually yeah that did he he was right that's mm. that, I think that it's was to a do corner with, it's the timing of it Charlie if they do it straight away then it's almost like it was they. Their brain wasn't even involved. Their muscles just took over and just went, mm. oh, it took a nick, took a nick. And there's, it's not that they're putting their hands up and going, surely, ref. It's like they know and, yeah. and that's it. And it's convincing. So I think that I, it should be in the laws of the game. I'm a big believer that refs, I mean, it's, it is, and it, this is where the water's muddied because some players do appeal vociferously for things they know aren't theirs. But I do think refs, and I've made this point to them many times, could help themselves because you do see an instinctive reaction sometimes, not just the attacking player, an attack player will have a shot, takes that nick, he walks over to take a corner, and a couple of the defenders start subconsciously even setting themselves up to defend one, which is really, really yeah, revealing yeah. because that's before even you're in the conscious mode of appealing to the ref. That's just, we all kind of know this to be true. And the ref will still kind of, in spite of that evidence from both teams, will be like, no, didn't see it. Exactly. The, psych- the pure psychology of appealing for a throw-in is absolutely fascinating. Rory, thanks so much for this. Um, uh, I knew you'd nail the cross-section of it despite eschewing the format completely. So um, I'll forgive you because you've nailed it. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, Good luck with the book. Data, it's for some people, isn't it? (laughs) That's the the slogan (laughs) we're going for. (laughs) Uh, Can't live with it, can't live without it. (laughs) You'll be getting the sales figures through in sort of graphs and oh god oh there's gonna be so many there's gonna be so much data about the sales yeah hopefully 
yeah. massive spike after this. You can't just yeah, you can't just look at it on a shelf and go, oh, that'll do well. No, <laughs> it's all about the data. But yeah, the best of luck with it. Sounds fascinating. Thank you very much. And uh, Charlie, thanks to you too. Thank you. We'll be back next week with the adjudication panel. Cheers for listening. The Athletic. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.